Hi, I'm Micah Halpern. Thank you for joining me today as I do some thinking out loud. Our first segment is called Background Briefing. The first thing I've been thinking about is how people celebrated Hanukkah this year. More specifically, how many people were actually afraid to publicly celebrate Hanukkah. The point is, Hanukkah may be over, but I'm still spinning. Hanukkah is not a one-off. It happens every year, every year after year after year after year, and it lasts for the full eight days and eight nights. And yet, the ignorance of people who should know, of people who have no reason not to know the story of Hanukkah, is still astounding. People like the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, the Jewish husband of the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. Not only does Emhoff not know the story, he chooses to flaunt his ignorance, and that's what's so upsetting to me. This is Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff's alternate rendition of Hanukkah as posted on X, formerly Twitter. Quote, the story of Hanukkah and the story of the Jewish people has always been one of hope and resilience. In the Hanukkah story, the Jewish people were forced into hiding. No one thought they would survive or that the few drops of oil they had would last. But they survived and the oil kept burning. During those eight days in hiding, they recited their prayers and continued their traditions. That's why Hanukkah means dedication. It was during those dark nights that the Maccabees dedicated themselves to maintaining hope and faith in the oil, each other, and their Judaism. In these dark times, I think of that story." Unquote. His revisionist history came complete with a picture posted on the fifth night of Hanukkah, the second gentleman and the vice president proudly lit their menorah, holding one single candle. It goes without saying that his is not the story of Hanukkah. And I still can't figure out what holiday he was describing. Jews hiding, Jews cowering in fear, Jews praying to be saved, Jews worshiping the oil. It troubles me that Emhoff and clearly others on his staff who helped draft this poppycock think that there is a Jewish holiday commemorated hiding and cowering in fear. They have disseminated an, a despicable fictional rendition of Judaism. It is ugly and it is reprehensible. And to think that they sent it out as a message, even as a holiday blessing, is a damning critique of Judaism and Jewish tradition. Although it has since been deleted, not to be clear. The lesson to be learned from Hanukkah is one of Jewish strength and Jewish power. The few defeated the many. A ragtag band of priests defeated the Seleucid Syrian Greeks, an empire. That's something to be proud of, not to be pitied for. As an important note, had the Maccabees lost that battle or had they not revolted against the Seleucids, Judaism would have died. The powerful assimilationist trend of the Hellenism and the Hellenists themselves would have overwhelmed Judaism and in the end Judaism would have vanished. That's something to ultimately celebrate. The holiday of Hanukkah is a holiday of Jewish pride. The mitzvah, the duty to light the Hanukkah candles, is a way of displaying the light and publicizing the Hanukkah miracle of the oil, which was a crucible suitable for one night, not a few drops of oil. 
and the military victory, of course. In all fairness, while he got the story wrong, the second gentleman did get the sense of fear and the darkness, as he termed it. It was just misplaced. This year, this Hanukkah, I noticed markedly fewer public Hanukkah displays than in previous years, not just decades. While I did not do a scientific study, walking through the streets of New York City and driving through the surrounding suburbs, there were fewer menorahs in windows and fewer outdoor displays of menorahs, Hanukkiot as we call them. Friends acknowledged that they lit their menorahs modestly this year, not wanting to draw attention to their homes. Many menorahs were, for the first time, not visible from their windows or their open doorways. In apartments, too, few menorahs were visible, especially in apartments of those who lived on the ground floor. Some places, even some cities, canceled or moved their Hanukkah lightings. As the Chabad Rabbi of Harvard made perfectly and publicly clear, he was permitted to hold an outdoor candle lighting ceremony, he said, but he was instructed to remove the menorah safely inside when they finished. Why? For fear that the menorah would become a target of vandalism. Many people, many institutions, many cities and organizations are afraid that the situation in Israel, the war against Hamas, will spill over to their backyards. To my mind, more troubling than the fear factor is the decisions that were made concerning that fear. As opposed to ensuring that destruction and vandalism of Jewish symbols does not happen, Harvard, let's say, for instance, and other places suggested that Jews remove their Jewish symbol. Even before Hanukkah, some schools, like Penn, suggested that Jews not wear Jewish symbols in public. The convenient response to the backlash being felt in response to Israel's war against Hamas is that this backlash is against Israel and not against Jews. Oh, how wrong. Hanukkah 2023 proves that point incorrect. Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday. Hanukkah is not an Israeli holiday. It happens to be celebrated in Israel, but also all over the world. This hatred is not limited to Israel. It is hatred of all Jews, hatred of all things Jewish. October 7th changed the paradigm of the Jewish world. The Jewish world is different after October 7th. We know it now. Jew hatred is more prevalent than we ever thought. The hatred is neither subtle nor nuanced anymore. It is direct and very ugly. Our young people are ill-equipped to deal with or confront this hatred. Our community organizations and institutions have become targets of attack. Offices and synagogues have become fortresses with multiple layers of security and guards. Is it the wrong reaction or the right reaction? If anything, October 7th should have taught us to stand up and stand proud of our Jewishness, especially in the face of Jewish hatred. This is the real lesson from the story of Hanukkah. If the second gentleman Emhoff's story was a true story of Hanukkah, Judaism would have died long ago in hiding. Coming up next, points of view. First up is a column from Ynet, published on December 17th, 2023. This column is written by three of the most prominent historians in Israel today. And they are Professor Dina Porat, Professor Tuvia Frilling, and Professor Liat Stier-Livni. The greatest among the three is, of course, Dina Porat. She is the Dean of Jewish Historians today. 
She and I actually share the mentor, the great Yehuda Bauer. Professor Porat actually co-wrote A History of the Holocaust with Bauer, an amazing work which still stands as the greatest single history of the Holocaust. The purpose of the column is to unveil the hypocrisy and the ineptitude of academics when it comes to Israel, especially their critical thought and total misuse of terms. Their column is entitled, When it comes to Hamas, historians forget the rules of academic deduction. It's subtitled, Opinion, University lecturers in Europe, U.S., claim Israel commits genocide and ethnic cleansing without the foundation in reality leaving historical study without a factual basis and only with a subverted version of events. This is how they begin. One of the first rules historians are taught is how to provide foundations for their claims through deduction and conclusions based on facts and not on ideas or political views. In order to build a valid historical narrative, they must collect all the facts at their disposal not just those who support their hypothesis or ideas. This first and basic lesson stood before us as we read and listened to the comments by university lecturers on the October 7th massacre in Europe and the United States. We heard lecturers claim to their students and to the world that the day that Hamas committed their atrocities was a day of liberation, a notable day of in the struggle we were amazed to read texts by some of those academicians, among them Jews and Israelis teaching abroad, which subverted reality, claiming Israel was committing war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing in Gaza that could lead to genocide. As the column continues, the professors proceed to explain why the use of the term genocide is incorrect and how it is simply wrongly used. They write, the claim of genocide is refutable. In 1948, Convention of the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide states that the perpetrators of genocide intend to completely or partially destroy a national, ethnic, or religious group or a religion as such. Since the start of the war, Israel declared that it had two objectives, to eliminate the military capabilities of Hamas and to return the hostages. Those objectives clearly differentiate between the civilian population in Gaza and Hamas terror group. Hamas is not a national, ethnic, or religious group, nor is it a race. It is a terror organization that is part of the Iranian axis. There is no correlation between the term genocide and the war against a terror group. In contrast, Hamas has publicly declared its intent to destroy Israel. Now the authors point out issues with terms that there are so obviously huge mistakes in thinking and in writing. The professors write, those learned lecturers claim the use by Israeli politicians of terms as human animals when describing the Hamas terrorists. They were dehumanizing their enemy, which could be, as world history has taught, the first step towards genocide. Aside from the fact that the despicable massacre carried out by Hamas has earned them such descriptive terms, the politicians using them referred them to the Hamas murderers, not the residents of Gaza as a whole, rendering the term genocide once again irrelevant. 
And now it's time for the professors to take on the term ethnic cleansing and point out just how wrong these other supposed educators, scholars really are. This is how they do it. The claim, ethnic cleansing, also lacks a basic basis in reality. Those learned academicians base their claim on the removal of civilians in Gaza from the northern areas to the south of the Strip. That is not evidence of an ethnic cleansing, but rather an attempt by the IDF to limit civilian casualties. In their claims, there is no mention of the humanitarian corridors open for the population to leave the impacted areas to the safety of the South, even as Hamas snipers were attempting to prevent their escape. The claim also ignores the aid trucks providing essentials into the Strip daily. Many of these trucks were robbed by members of Hamas who take their contents to be used by Hamas rather than the civilians for whom the aid was provided. The terrorists also sell the aid back to Gazan civilians for exorbitant prices, although they were meant to be distributed for free. The column concludes with an explanation of how it is that Hamas truly bears responsibility. They write, the suffering in Gaza is immense and will likely not improve in the immediate future, but it is vital to recognize that Hamas is responsible for creating what has become an intolerable humanitarian crisis. Lacking from the lecturer's assertions is any mention of the systematic destruction of the industrial zones established by Israel on the border to provide employment for residents of Gaza. These areas were a symbol of coexistence and a source of income for thousands of families. For 18 years of Hamas rule in Gaza, the terror group could have opted to invest millions of dollars flowing into the Strip to provide a better life for the population rather than building a terror infrastructure, accumulating rockets, constructing underground tunnels, and disseminating hate. Interviews given by senior members of the terror group before and since October 7 reveal that not only does Hamas seek to destroy Israel, but it's willing to sacrifice its own people on the altar of radical Islam and Jihad. This is a truly excellent piece. I know that all of you already know that. If you're watching JBS, you understand this. But it's vital and vitally important to know what is being written and read. So that's why I added it. Next up is a column by Michael Oren from the Times of Israel. The column by one of Israel's former ambassadors to the United States was published also on December 17th, 2023. It's entitled Friendly Fire, That Horrific Oxymoron, and subtitled Casualties in These Tragic Accidents Are Doubled, Those Who Are Killed and Those Who Must Live With Their Fatal Mistakes. This is how Oren begins. The announcement Friday night that IDF troops had shot and killed three Israelis who had managed to escape Hamas captivity pitched the nation into despondency. It had not known since October 7th. The incident seemed to symbolize the madness, the nightmarishness, and the hopelessness of this entire war. Just when it appeared that the IDF was making serious headway and Hamas showing signs of disintegration, when reports were circulating of another round of hostage releases, the killing of Yotam Chaim, Samar Talaka, and Alon Lulu Shamriz, all reportedly stripped to the waist and waving a white flag, made many Israelis question the conduct, if not the fundamental sense, of the war.
Nobly, Israeli defense leaders took responsibility for the incident. They noted the complex environment in which IDF soldiers were fighting, the Gaza killing zone, in which virtually any moving silhouette could be that of a suicide bomber. Cited also were the 20% of all IDF casualties in Gaza attributed to what is properly known as friendly fire. Friendly fire, a deadly oxymoron that is familiar to anyone who has lived through a war, especially as a combatant. I have several times and have come to consider myself an involuntary expert on the topic, yet I never spoke about it, at least not publicly, until the evening before Israel's ground incursion into Gaza, when I went to meet my old paratrooper unit. Oren reveals his personal history and the fear of shooting the wrong person, especially a member of his unit. And he then writes, no matter how frequent friendly fire incidents have never stood in the way of pursuing justified wartime goals, neither the death by American anti-aircraft fire of U.S. Army pilot John L. Danes the first to shoot down a Japanese bomber over Pearl Harbor, nor the unintended massacre of 7,000 POWs in a British bombing raid on the German harbor just days before the end of World War II prevented the Allies from completing the Axis defeat. Oren concludes with an insistence that fear must not get in the way of the essential momentum Israel needs to push ahead and to win this war against Hamas. He writes, So, too, must Israel persist in achieving its objective of destroying Hamas. By increasing the pressure on terrorists, Israel succeeded in negotiating the first temporary ceasefires for hostages deals. And further such arrangements are possible. But Hamas will never release all its captives without ending the war and regaining the ability to rebuild, rearm, and reignite a new one. Notwithstanding the exquisite pain involved, Israel must not let friendly fire consume our will and determination to defend ourselves against an enemy sworn to annihilate us. Well said, Ambassador Oren. Coming up, commentary through cartoons, where pictures tell the story. I want to show you six cartoons, memes, and headlines today, plus a poem. We'll begin with the poem. This poem is both in Hebrew and in English. It's a powerful description of a mother unpacking the tarmil, the backpack of her son, who is serving in Gaza and returns home for a few short hours. This English version of the poem was translated from the Hebrew by Racheli Mashkovitz. It's titled, A Coat of Many Colors. A Coat of Many Colors. My son returned from battle, his duffel bursting with things that I had not packed for him. Socks donated by a community in Argentina, a quilted blanket smelling like someone else's home, a blue towel from a family from the Moshav, tzitzit from Jerusalem, a fleece jacket gifted by a high-tech company, a scarf knitted by an elderly lady, undershirts purchased by a paybox group, a sheet that was given to him by a friend, gloves bought by teenage girls, a jacket from the closet of someone who came and requested to give. I spread out all of these garments and weave together a new coat of many colors. See, Yosef, your brothers were there for you. A very important and inspiring message of Jews around the world helping 
the IDF. Next up is a quote, a meme can be quoted, and this one is from the great economist Thomas Sowell, who said, Ours may be the first civilization destroyed, not by a power of our enemies, but by the ignorance of our teachers and the dangerous nonsense they are teaching our children. In an age of artificial intelligence, they are creating artificial stupidity. Sowell is now 93 years old and still as sharp as he was 70 years ago. Next up is a headline. It describes a Turkish lawmaker who has since died. I watched the speech he delivered before the Turkish parliament several times. In his speech, he curses Israel and Israel's allies, and then he collapses. And the headline reads, lawmaker collapses of heart attack on parliament floor after saying Israel can't escape the wrath of Allah. After his collapse and subsequent death, there were some among the Muslim world who spoke about divine retribution, believing that Allah punished him instead of Israel after a scathing verbal attack. Next up is a meme. Scientists have discovered several new species of poison ivy. Harvard, Yale, Penn, and Princeton. This is a very simple turn on the phrase, and I'm reading and hearing it over and over again. All over, people are using that phrase, poison ivy, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and MIT, and Penn. Now we have a Hamas terrorist taking a selfie, and they're saying, now comes the war of public opinion. Israel's response is a hawk watching from above. Tragic, I think. The next cartoon is entitled, The Laws of War, Hamas Style. Hamas terrorists are in the truck chasing and shooting Jews. The leader shouts, women and children first. Sadly, that is what happened. It's a terrible, terrible scenario. Finally, this last cartoon is of the Grand Ayatollah of Iran. His hands are filled with blood, dripping in blood. And the caption reads, time to wash up for evening prayers. Simple, poignant, and powerful. In a moment, more on my own perspective and a few predictions. Israel's investigation into tragedy during which IDF soldiers killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza have begun. The IDF examined the building from which the hostages emerged. They found signs signaling the need for help within the building, which is located in Shayaisha neighborhood in northern Gaza Strip. As we discussed in the column by Michael Oren, the Israeli hostages Yotam Chaim Alon Shamirz and Samer Talalka were killed by IDF-friendly fire. Improvised signs, though, were found in the building, were seemingly written with food scraps. The signs read SOS, help three hostages. According to IDF, this is a quote, based on the on-site investigation, it appears that the three hostages were in the building where the signs were found, at least for some time. The investigation is ongoing. We spend a lot of our time focusing on the war against Hamas in Gaza. It is essential that we also spend time looking into Israel's conflict with Hezbollah and Hezbollah's threats to Israel's northern region. In one afternoon alone, for example, nine rockets were fired from Lebanon towards northern Israel's upper Galilee region. Several of the rockets fell in open areas. Hezbollah took their part and they claimed responsibility for 10 attacks directed at Israeli territory. That same afternoon, Israeli aircraft and tanks attacked a terrorist cell that attempted to launch anti-tank missiles towards Israel. 
near the border town of Livne. And then several launches were detected towards various areas along the border. The IDF struck the sources of the fire. Meanwhile, the Palestinian news agencies, Shahab, reported that a fire broke out in a house in southern Lebanese village of Maroun al-Raz as a result of an IDF strike. And finally, the IDF spokesperson's unit reported that forces, including a strike drone, attacked several Hezbollah targets and a terrorist cell located in Lebanon. That's all in one afternoon on the northern border. Oksana Lubnov, the mother of Gaza hostage Alex Lubnov, who has been held captive by Hamas since October 7th, began a hunger strike until her son's return. Alex, 32, was kidnapped from the music festival near Kibbutz Re'im, where he worked as a bar manager. In response to the friendly fire, Alex's wife, Michal, who is pregnant and due to deliver the baby sometime soon, is quoted saying, what happened the other day made me realize that nothing is being done for them to come back. We only receive dead bodies every day. I have no hope. Oksana Lubanov, Alex's mother, spoke to Wynet saying, only with diplomacy will hostages be released, not by force. Through the army, they brought only one female soldier and corpses. Without a deal, there's no hope. IDF forces found weapons concealed in incubators inside the Gaza Strip Medical Center. The announcement released by the IDF highlighted the use of civilian infrastructure for military purposes by Palestinian terror groups. In a statement, the IDF said that they have recently completed, in cooperation with the Shimbet Security Agency, a large-scale operation in Kamal Adwan Hospital in Jabalia, which had been utilized by Hamas as a command and control center. The IDF reported the arrest of approximately 90 men suspected of terrorist activities, including some who were implicated in the October 7th massacre. The IDF, together with the Shimbet, interrogated hospital staff who revealed that weapons were concealed in incubators within the NICU incubators of all places, meant for the care of premature infants. The IDF then found more weapons, classified documents, and tactical communication devices hidden in the hospital. Also during the activity in Jabalia, the Nahal Brigade located an operational tunnel shaft inside the children's room in the basement of a building, apartment building no less. The tunnel shaft, which included built-in stairs, was promptly destroyed by the brigade's engineering forces. We've been thinking out loud about a lot today. Now that you know what I've been thinking, let me know what you're thinking. Email me at micah at jbstv.org. Tweet me at Micah Halpern. Tell me what you think. Before we end, let me leave you with one picante piece of information. Did you know that I have been deeply disturbed by the untruths parading as fact regarding Israel and Hamas? Like the professors whose column we read earlier, I am working nonstop to point out and identify these untruths. Aristotle, and by extension Maimonides, were obsessed with truth. And that is truth with a capital T. Aristotle's famous definition of truth, as he wrote in his great work, Metaphysics, is essential to understanding truth. I'm going to read what Aristotle wrote very slowly so that we hang on every word. To say 
of what is that it is not, or of what is not that it is, is false. While to say of what is that it is, and what is not that it is not, is true. Maimonides, to Aristotle, he referred to Aristotle as the philosopher, and to his school of philosophy as the philosophers. Maimonides speaks of truth, emet, the Hebrew word for truth. There is no gray when it comes to truth. There is no relative truth. The best example is the sentence, fresh snow is white. When someone says it is not, they are not speaking the truth. It is an untruth. We need to correct the untruths when it comes to Israel and Hamas. We must correct the untruths. Thank you for thinking out loud with me, Micah Halpern. Let's think out loud again next week on JBS. Mm-hmm.